The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Friday, June 7th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Trump administration has a plan to allow cars to become so pollutive that it is being opposed by those tree-hugging, tofu-chugging car executives. Yes, the auto industry is actually urging Trump towards less tailpipe pollution. He wants more. Here is how NPR puts it. The Trump administration is working to roll back Obama-era policies calling for cars to get more fuel efficient to fight climate change. A rolling back of efficiency standards. Can we just say what it is? Embracing fuel inefficiency standards. It's an embrace of fuel inefficiency. And this, by the way, this is literally the Trump administration's stance. They want more pollution. The auto industry wants less. Someone wake up Henry Ford and tell him how soft his descendants have gotten. Oh no, why Why are you looking up to the skies? I said Henry Ford. Down, look down. Trump, I suppose, will soon be urging coal miners to emit more smoke, more, more beautiful billowing smoke. We won't be able to see the libs, but trust me, we'll own them. Here's the real deal. The auto companies wouldn't mind less restriction. What industry doesn't want less restriction? You could always voluntarily adhere to whatever high models you want to adhere to. Lots of consumers will demand higher standards for tailpipe emissions. It's just that the Trump knee-jerk loathing of everything that Obama ever did, that he perceives to have the Obama stank on it, it is whipsawing industry back and forth. They know what will happen, that a bunch of states, you know, the ones that science the best, those states will stick to stricter standards. So instead of having one car market, they'll have two or maybe more in the United States, and that will be a nightmare for them. So our president got a rebuke from the car industry over pollution. The car industry was on the side of less pollution. The president was on the side of more pollution. Perhaps it's because they run real businesses, not say, the branding exercises that rely mostly on estate tax evasion schemes. On the show today, your go-to proper names and words that you can quickly access when telling a story or delighting people with an anecdote. But first, here's an email received today from Patrick Gillum, subject, suggested guests, as a palate cleanser after George Will's suggestion for guests. Okay, first of all, Palate cleanser is not my term. I asked George Will's opinions. I got them. I can't be upset about that. And he's got a palate cleanser already, right? I mean, between the acrimony of Fox News screamers and the outrage of MSNBC stalwarts, here comes George Will with a quip about de Tocqueville, perhaps an anecdote about Honus Wagner. It's the cooling rhetorical sorbet. Anyway, anyway, on to Patrick Gillum's suggestion. I suggest, he says, Adam Gopnik, whose new book, A Thousand Small Sanities, is an unalloyed joy. I think he either means unalloyed joy or I copied his message wrong. But anyway, Patrick Gillum, here's your long-distance dedication. The New Yorker's Adam Gopnik, whose new book, A Thousand Small Sanities, has been called, quote, an unalloyed joy. Possibly unalloyed. Right after the election of 2016, 
Adam Gopnik's daughter, Olivia, was, as they say, as her generation says, shook. In fact, I don't know if her generation says that. Something my generation thinks her generation might say. She's 17 years old. Of course, she wants to figure out what's going on in the world. And Adam Gopnik wanted to explain it to her. And as he explains in his book, A Thousand Small Sanities, that verbal explanation didn't go so well. So he said to himself, wait a minute, I'm an award-winning staff writer at The New Yorker. I've written several books. Maybe this would better be served in a written form. Thus, the book I'm holding in my hand, A Thousand Small Sanities, The Moral Adventure of Liberalism. Thanks for coming on, Adam. Delighted to be here, Mike. So this goes in a few directions. First question I'll ask is, 20 years ago, do you did you think that you would be explaining slash arguing to liberals or to progressives or to people who would never vote for the other side of the aisle's candidate for president, explaining these fundamental truths like the quality of the argument is more important than the demographic of the person making the argument. Is that surprising to you? Uh, A little. Yes, it is a little surprising to me, I think. And, you know, I've been writing about liberal thinkers, liberal philosophers, liberal actors, liberal novelists, liberal painters for the the New Yorker for a very long time. You know, specific essays, uh, biographical essays is one of the things I do. So I was able, I was trying to harvest all of those. But yes, I thought I was writing this book specifically in response to the coming of Trump. And I wanted to respond to the national emergency as best I could. Did I anticipate the degree of illiberalism that would seem to rise up on the left? You know, one of my basic premises in this whole book, Mike, is that although causes change, initial impulses, the general shape of our social life and political life remains remarkably constant over a relatively long period of time. And one of the truths that has always has been is that the radical left has always tried to silence the liberal left by saying, you do not speak, not only do you not speak truth, you simply speak as a ventriloquist puppy, yes. puppets, as Charlie McCarthy to capitalism's Edgar Bergen. And that's been a constant theme since the 1840s, 1850s, since the rise of, of Marxism. And as, so as a consequence, it, there's nothing very new about it. There's nothing new about the notion that what matters most is the origin of the speaker, with the consciousness of the speaker rather than the content of her words. I didn't expect to see it take such new life. What makes it complicated, and I wouldn't want to give people the impression that this book is in any sense an attack on the liberal left, because it isn't. That's a very small, small chapter. That's a small yes. part of it. And you, uh, and you follow heroes who are of all different stripe and of yes, all different backgrounds. Exactly. And that's, who exemplify liberalism. Exemplify liberalism, but also, if I might say, also exemplify the, the best of the attacks on liberalism. Mm-hmm. So in the chapter on the left, I have a lot about Emma Goldman, who's a real hero, a heroine, I suppose one should say, of mine. An extraordinary thinker and actor, an amazing woman. Her autobiography is one of the great things in English, and she hated liberals, was expelled from the country by J. Edgar Hoover, but had the brains and moral sense when she arrived in Russia to say, my God, this is horrible. Yeah. This is the in early on, pre-Stalin, under Lenin, that this is a nightmare, and was honest about it. She never reconciled with liberalism. I don't mean to give the wrong impression, but I wanted the book to be full of portraits of people on all sides who were in some way admirable, some way complex. So it is a confluence of the actual and the imagined. And I hate to lean so much on what about the millennials character and composure and their makeup, but you write about John Stuart Mill. And Mm. I'm thinking that this is an interesting character because the way he was raised is the most opposite that a millennial is raised. He was raised by a totalitarian 
dictatorial father who made him, he was essentially raised in an intellectual Skinner box. Yes. And he, he revolted against it and he hated it, but it also made him the most brilliant, rigorous thinker of all time. Yes. I, no millennial <laughs> has ever been raised by that, although maybe you could argue tiger moms are veering towards that. The great thing about Mill, and Mill is my hero, he's the implicit hero, he's not the implicit hero, he's yes. the explicit hero of this book, and is the guy whose picture sits on my desk and is, to my mind, the greatest political philosopher who has ever lived. The thing about Mill is he rebelled against that. He rebelled against utilitarianism, he rebelled against his father's habit of stuffing him with information, had a nervous breakdown, and did an extraordinary thing. He didn't turn, as all of his critics wanted him to, towards religion or towards God. He turned towards Mozart. Mm -hmm. He said the richest things in life are art and music, and the real end of life should not be to get all as many goodies as his father's utilitarianism suggested. Maximum utility is not for human beings. Human beings should try to fulfill themselves, live as fully as they possibly can. So he did. So I like him. He went to France. He, He learned French, appreciated the richness of French culture and he fell in love and that's where this book begins with the moment when he falls in love with a married woman yeah and has to decide what to do about it and they they conduct a courtship near the rhinoceros cage at the zoo under the premise that no one will be looking at them because everyone's looking at the rhinoceros and the rhinoceros serves a good function for you as um the opposite of the unicorn in that they're similar you know they both have that centrally placed horn but the unicorn isn't real and the rhinoceros is yeah exactly (laughs) so for me the rhinoceros is the heraldic symbol the the uh, the heraldic animal of liberalism. It isn't particularly appealing to look at. It's kind of ugly. Travelers, when they see one, uh, transpose it into a unicorn because wouldn't you rather be looking at a beautiful white animal with a long shining uh, horn rather than a rhinoceros? But unicorns don't exist and rhinoceri do and they're formidable. So in my little symbolic scheme that leads off the book, a unicorn is a symbol of utopian political thinking and the rhinoceros of liberalism, of uh, radicalism of the real. You use the phrase identity politics. I think it's a useful phrase, but it's one of those phrases like elitist or relativist that we know maybe it exists with other people, but but it never exists with us. Privilege too, right? Yeah, privilege is a great one too. But it seems that there is a value in examining what's really going on. But what I find is uh, in liberal circles or in the New Yorker or a place like that, the most common thing to do is to deny the premise. Oh, there's no such thing as identity politics. You know, the right has it too. What's identity politics if not voting for Trump? To which I'd say I concede that point. But can we find a way to talk about, you know, the privileging of one's demographics over the ideas? And it seems to me like the answer is no. That is just an out-of-bounds conversation, except among people who think it's a problem. So how do you, you're an arguer, you're a convincer. How do you convince Olivia of this? Well, you know, two things at least need to happen. One is, is that you have to be willing with, with the right kind of self-irony to recognize you're saying, you and I are both saying this and we're white guys. Right. We're white guys saying it. So, you know, you walk through the Disney Hall of Presidents and it's all white guys except for one. And you have to say, hmm, that's not because... It's all, you know, it was always, uh, these were guys for the best. How do you make the argument? Look, you, there are two. One is, I think, a, uh, if I may say, a kind of profound and philosophical argument. And that is that uh, what we call essentialism, that is saying you are really this thing rather than some other thing, is the root doctrine of reactionary. It's the core doctrine of reactionary politics. It's exactly 
to move the argument as one is not supposed to, but as I think one always should. It's the core doctrine of German nationalism, of core doctrine of Nazism. Uh, there is such thing as Jewish physics, and Jewish physics must be wrong because it's produced by Jews. That's a that's a central doctrine. And the right thing to say is it doesn't matter who produces it. It's either true or it's false. It's either good science or it's bad science. In the same way, uh, we can understand that we have, you and I have interests and, and uh, prejudices in common, because we all do, without thinking we can reduce our arguments or our points of view simply to our identity. I give the example in the book because I think it's important to try and make this distinction that identity politics have always been central to democratic politics. Mm -hmm. And I produced, there's a famous memo that Clark Clifford wrote for Harry Truman, 1947, about the next year's election. What does he do? Does he say, we need an overarching umbrella theme that will bring all of our people together? No. He says, here's what we need to do for the Jews. Here's what we need to do for the farmers. Here's what we need to do for the Negroes, as they're called at that point. Here's what we need to do for the workers. Here's what we need to do for the white segregationists. Each one of the interest groups, as they call them then, they didn't call them identity groups, each of these pressure groups has got to be placated in one way or another. That's how democratic politics yeah. works. And that's not wrong. That's it's not wrong. Smart. Nothing wrong. That's no. smart. That's how you build a coalition. That's yeah. what democratic politics are. Let's talk a little about some tangible politicians. Do you think in 2019, 2020, that the policies of Barack Obama as he executed them would be popular? This is a really good question because I think a really good reproach, there are foolish reproaches to my book, a really good reproach in my view would be to say, look, great, what you're outlining here are the politics of Barack Obama. That's yeah. exactly what this, I think Barack Obama would basically agree with the totality of it. I thought Barack Obama was great and then the argument would go on. And A, Barack Obama was a failure. He didn't do the things he set out to do. He left us with Donald Trump as president. Right. And B, if he tried to do them again now, it would be even more of a failure. Right. I wouldn't say A. I'd say he's unpopular. He doesn't seem suited to the moment or those policies don't. I wouldn't blame Trump right. on him. But definitely B, I can see. Right. Yeah. Uh, two things. I mean, it's a matter of practical reality, and this is not unimportant. He probably would get elected again if he could run for office again. He seems to be very broadly popular. Obama was struck by particular logistical problems, strategic problems, tactical problems, as every pol Democratic politician will be. People now tend to forget. They blame him for not having a uh, public dimension uh, uh, for public option for uh, the Affordable Care Act, not pushing further in the Canadian direction. But he couldn't do it. People now forget. Massachusetts, the most liberal state in the nation, elected a Republican senator in reaction to Obama bringing in the Affordable Care Act. <laughs> yeah, the, the great Scott Brown is yeah, now embarrassing himself in New Zealand. Exactly. But that was what happened. And you have to be, if you're a genuine progressive, a genuine liberal, a radical of the real, you have to recognize that that will always happen in times of change. And you cannot imagine that your will will somehow override that. Right. So I think that Obama coming in now would still say, face some of those logistic, those log jams. I will add to that, though, and it's one of the things I say at the end of my book, and I feel very uncomfortable playing the role of a pundit. I'm an essayist. I'm somebody who, who savors mm -hmm. sentences and savors people. And reads 15 books and distills it down to that's my, thoughts yes, that yes. are based on them and inspired by them. That's, yeah. the, the, that's my job, is mulching books yes. into compost and then growing weeds uh, <laughs> uh, from them. I do think that Obama's essentially technocratic turn of mind and his decision once elected to govern from a technocratic turn of mind, that beautiful look, you know, that always look that he began every sentence with, which, which meant let's not bullshit each other with all of this uh, rhetoric. Here's the reality and here's what we have to do with it. Admirable in many ways, clearly 
not adequate to the measure of panic, identity panic of every kind in his time. The cool technocratic mind and approach pleases some, but it frightens and uh, threatens the identity and the and the feeling of others. I yeah. think we need a more passionate liberal politics than we have had in the last few years. Barack Obama always talked about taking the uh, societal progress was like turning an aircraft carrier. Yes. You don't notice it in the moment, but eventually it gets there. He was talking, to, he used that analogy about gay marriage, but I think it applies to a lot of things. And I thought that a Hillary Clinton presidency would be one of gains, small gains, maybe unnoticeable gains, still hatred of her as a personality. <laughs> and we'd ne- we wouldn't be happy. Like yeah. we'd actually have these improvements. We'd not feel them, not be happy. And right. then probably there'd be a backlash against her. I, I don't know how to... If you didn't live through it and you don't know the history and you don't know what the crime bill did or you don't know, I just saw there was a one day kerfuffle of Joe Biden saying something pro fences at the borders. And I my head wanted to explode because look at the vote. 2006 Border Security Act. The votes are there. He's not backing up Trump. He's just saying what the majority of Democrats say. If you don't know the history, it's very hard to feel the progress. And I think that is a big problem that we have. Well, that's one of the reasons I wrote this book. Yeah, because I want. I wanted Olivia's generation. I wanted to say, look, let's expand the historical perspective just a little bit and we'll understand uh, we'll understand these things better. And I guess also because I feel that we can so easily underestimate the fragility of liberal institutions. All of these things happened mm-hmm. because we had strong liberal institutions. Obviously, representation, representative institutions, democratic institutions. Flawed? Absolutely flawed. Uh, Flawed by money, flawed by our damned old constitution that rewards uh, rural uh, slaveholders, basically, over urban people. Flawed in, in, in hundreds of ways, and yet still capable of being responsive. We have the right that you and I are exercising to speak to each other. I know I sound like a sixth grade civics teacher when I say, that's an astonishing right. But you know what? It is an astonishing right. We can't do it in China. We can't do it. China's a big capitalist country. We can't do this in China, right? We can't speak up and say what we don't like about the Communist Party in China. In the history of humankind, our ability to do this, to speak freely without any impediments about what we think about the world we live in, is been known by this tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of people. We're lucky enough to be those people. And if you think that liberal institutions can be uh, abandoned tomorrow and then recreated a week later, if you think that they're self-evident, if you think, oh, well, any society will always have them. It, you know, this comes up on the right wing as well. I write about this in the book. People who believe liberalism has failed. What we need is new religious authority. We need to go back yeah. to the idea of religious authority. Then they always said, oh, but of course we'd have freedom of speech and rights for women, as though these things, which are absolutely particular and peculiar mm-hmm. to liberal societies, can somehow readily be replicated by uh, theological, the- theocratic societies, which have always been hostile to them. And you get the same thing from the left. Yeah. So uh, that, if there's a message in this book, it's value liberal institutions, protect liberal institutions, make coalitions with people who are prepared to protect liberal institutions. They're incredibly fragile and they're incredibly potent. The lifeblood of uh, not just of a democracy, of any healthy society is argument. You know, they called it the agora in ancient Greece. People came together yeah. Yeah. to be heard. Yeah. And every tyranny <laughs> hates the agora more yeah. than it hates any other single thing. And this, is, and this is where the word agoraphobic comes exactly. from. And this is what so many of, of people have become exactly. intellectually agoraphobic. Exactly. Don't go outside your own silo. Exactly. And yeah. that's, that's, to my mind, is truly bad. And I'm glad that Olivia is agoraphilic, <laughs> if there is such a word. 
Yeah, a neologism. Adam Gopnik is the author of A Thousand Small Sanities. It's it's his first book of political essays after uh, a number of books and essays that have, uh, you know, probably lit your world on fire if you're like me. A Thousand Small Sanities, The Moral Adventure of Liberalism. Thanks for coming in. Wonderful to be here. And now the spiel. The Wall Street Journal had this profile today of an anti-Brexit activist, a very active activist who plants himself outside of Parliament and makes sure he's heard. He's Stop Brexit Steve. I've been escorted off the green by the police well over 200 times, sometimes 10 times in a day. I've lost count. It was getting harder and harder to get onto the green. So my view was, if you can't be seen, you've got to be heard. Last time MPs voted on this. Someone's being a bit noisy, aren't they, in the background? Oh, yes, someone is. But he's not Brexit Baba Booey. Stop Brexit Steve. It's a good name. And if showing up with a larger and larger megaphone and wearing a Union Jack EU flag mashup as a cape and dedicating yourself to populating the live shots of every network from ABC to BBC, if that is what you thought was unusual, you're right. It's a little unusual. But you know what's very usual about Stop Brexit Steve? Steve, the Steve part. Steve is the quintessential mainstream male name. It's not that every Tom, Dick, and Harry is named Steve. It's that there is a respectable believability to it. When you're calling a guy Steve, it's not like you're calling him Joe Blow. It's not like you're calling a dog Fido. Guys are actually named Steve. It doesn't mean societally generic guy. I mean, the word guy doesn't even mean that. But it is a name for guys, some generic guys, some other guys. Used to be a lot more popular in the 50s. Steven Steven, that was the 11th most popular boy's name. And then by decade, it declined. 19, 25, 35 in the 90s. Lately, it has fallen out of the top 100. Still, pretty popular. Everyone knows of Steve. There was a movie named The Dow of Steve where Donald Logue, he had a character, his name wasn't Steve, but he explained what's so cool about Steve. Steve, man, come on. Steve is the prototypical cool American male. You know what I'm talking about? Steve McGarrett, all right, Steve uh, Austin, Steve McQueen. You know, he's the man on his horse, the guy alone. He has his own code of honor, his own code of ethics, his own rules of living, man. He, he never, ever tries to impress the women, but he always gets the girl. I actually disagree. I don't think Steve is cool. I don't think Steve is uncool. I think Steve is just Steve. There was an article in the New York Times written in the first person by a guy named David Coleman who has a condition where he can't remember anyone's name. His solution? He just called everyone Steve. Now, again, that guy's name was David Coleman. It wasn't Donald Trump. There was progress today. I look forward to solving it. Thank you, Steve. Steve. That first Steve who he thanked, that was Kevin McCarthy. And into Have and Have Not, Lauren Bacall calls Bogey's character, who she knows is named Harry Morgan. Well, just listen. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. It was Steve. It would be kind of weird if I set that whole clip up and then it were Umberto. Steve has a special place in my heart because it is my go-to. It's just my, just a guy's name. If I'm telling a story or making a joke, but I need some specificity, but not a distracting amount, guy walks into a bar, let's call him Steve, or the sickness seems to have overtaken most of the passengers, inducing vomit, diarrhea, and dizziness. Doctors don't know what to call it. 
I'll always say, you call it Steve. See how that works? My dad's go-to was Freddy. Different generation. George Harrison in Hard Day's Night used Arthur in a similar way. Uh, what would you call that uh, hairstyle you're wearing? Arthur. Arthur was to 1960s England as Steve is to here and now. But I have a problem. See, when I try these jokes, these references with my family, they always think I'm talking about my landlord, whose name is Umberto. No, it's Steve, whose name is Steve. And I want to tell you, Steve is a listener. So message to Steve, the ant trap seemed to be working, inefficient way to communicate with the landlord, but I'm not on Snapchat. The presence of this real Steve in my life has forced me into using as my go-to, Dave. And it doesn't land the same way. We all need our go-tos. We all need our quickly retrieved proper name that adds to an anecdote or funny story. There are different brands of go-tos. For, for place, like Random Place USA, I choose Omaha. I go with Omaha. Omaha's not that odd. Kurt Anderson's from Omaha. I've been to Omaha. I like Omaha. Sometimes with Omaha as the go-to, it's led to problems. A few weeks ago, I was interviewing my chiropractor for a segment on The Gist, and this was said. I don't think I could survive here in Brooklyn, New York, just, you know, doing simple adjustments, you know, with the demographic that I'm treating in, in the in the CrossFit building that I'm in with the, you know, all the athletes around here. So you have to prove your worth, really. Yeah. You hear that, people listening outside of Omaha? Take a trip to Brooklyn <laughs> to get adjusted. So then we got an email. I am an Omaha chiropractor, and I can assure you my practices adhere to the finest standards, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Look, Nothing against you, bud. Omaha is just my go-to. If I wanted a broader and more obviously comical go-to, I'd go with Walla Walla or Oshkosh. Hohokus, New Jersey for local flavor, but you have to say the New Jersey part of Hohokus, New Jersey, I find. Johnny Carson enjoyed Walla Walla. It has a good mouthfeel, that Walla Walla. What is that called? Umami? He also likes saying Piazadora. That was his go-to female celebrity. Mine couple steps down on the wackiness meter, Marsha Gay Harden. There are a couple others in the category of actors that I just quickly can retrieve and reference, Julia Ormond and Bruce Boxleitner. I like saying things like, oh, was that a Bruce Boxleitner vehicle? Perhaps with its alliteration, Bruce Boxleitner has the whiff of the Walla Walla about it. Then there are TV shows. Now, TV has become so fractured. You could name the most watched shows now, and most people won't know them unless they're Game of Thrones. So I usually go with Small Wonder. That's my go-to. For a deep cut, Mr. Merlin and Shasta McNasty. The just founding producer, Andrea, was a big Judging Amy fan in this regard. Actually, she wasn't a big Judging Amy fan. Doubt she ever watched it. She was a big fan of telling people she was a Judging Amy fan. Let me ask you a question. Are you Amy? Then don't judge public radio program, Thistle and Shamrock, It Never Fails, Some Like Living on Earth. I like the TNS myself. Movies? For years, mine was breaking to Electric Boogaloo. But I was one up by my friend Luke Burbank, who would always reference Legends of the Guardians, The Owls of Gahul. That has it all. There is no lightly amusing anecdote that won't be strengthened with a reference to Legends of the Guardians, The Owls of Gahul. Yeah, and we were on the tarmac for three hours, and I was getting upset because they said the FAA wouldn't let us play their in-flight movie. And it was Legends of the Guardian, Owls of Gahul. I mean, how am I not supposed to watch that? Unfortunately, Legends of the Guardian, the Owls of Gahul, relied on actual professional voice actors, not stunt celebrity cameos. But wouldn't you just have died if you heard 
Ezelrib, voiced by Bruce Boxleitner, or Bioni by, I don't know, say like Marsha Gay Harden. If you don't have your go-tos and you don't have them set, I advise you to develop them. You're never too old. Don't make them excessively of the moment, but don't mire them in the past either. Or you know what? Do. We need more references to Buddy Epson and Farley Granger out there. And if you do have your own, I would like to know what they are. So tweet me at Pescami or SlateGist or email the gist at Slate.com. Or if you can, send us a self-addressed stamped envelope to Steve, Omaha, Nebraska. Or you know what? Send a raven or an owl of Gahul. That'd be cool. And that's it for today's show. Tomorrow, if you're hearing this today on Friday, tomorrow at 5.30 in New York City at the SVA Theater, we're doing a live show where Adam Davidson and Manoush Zamarodi and, and, and Nick Kwa will be on stage. And I'm just going to tell this to you once and now, and this is the surprise booking. There will be a comic. He will kick off the show. I can't name who he is, but he might be my 10-year-old son. We think he's going to kill. He's playing Gotham before. He's going to walk down the block to SVA. You could come at 5.30 and watch that. PRBNMA and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. Their go-tos are, respectively, The Englishman Who Went Up a Hill But Came Down a Mountain and Highlander to The Quickening. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcast. Her go-to film is Glitter, which also features her go-to musical act, Da Brat. Oh, she just likes to kick back at the end of the day and put on her Beats by Dre and listen to Waka Flocka Flame and Da Brat. The gist, we hope to someday be someone's podcast go-to, the way On Being is now for so many. Oomperu Depru Dupru, and thanks for listening.